Hey, just a warning. This episode contains references to the sexual abuse and assault of minors, trauma, and other graphic content, which some listeners may find distressing. If you would like assistance, we'll list some support services available in Australia at the end and in the show notes. Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. My name is Aaron Johnstone. Today we're asking the question, how do we find our voice? There was a classic Seinfeld stand-up joke where he mentioned how scared people are of public speaking, that we tend to fear it more than death itself. We'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. I don't know how true that is. Psychologists seem to say around 25 to 40% of people have a real fear of public speaking or glossophobia. Well, for today, we're going to do something a little bit different and chat to someone who has all kinds of insights and stories to tell. Someone who has an incredible voice and boldness in the public square. We have none other than the former Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, with us. Even to procure and groom an already isolated child, one has to subvert a number of steps, not just laws, but they have to manipulate people. It requires not only the will, but the preparation, the knowledge, the criminal intent to to harm a child. Since being announced Australian of the Year in January 2021, Grace has become a household name as a brave and passionate advocate for a number of important social causes, but especially for the systemic change to prevent child sexual abuse. The Grace Tame Foundation works with government, not-for-profits, legal experts, and educators to improve protections in legislation and to inform and educate people in our communities about sexual abuse and survivor issues. She's also written a memoir, The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner, and she contributes to The Shot as a co-host on their podcast and writer, She's had an utterly extraordinary and unimaginable life in every sense of those words, filled with darkness and light, and all before the age of 30. Welcome, Grace Tame. What an honor to have you on Deeper Questions. Thanks for having me, Aaron. That is quite an introduction. (laughs) So, quick confession. Um, I haven't really been sure where to start this conversation because there are just so many interesting threads and angles that we could go in. I imagine many of them would be fun to talk about, but I thought I'd start with something that isn't fun to do, but is fun hearing other people do for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) And in this case, I'm talking about Bikram Yoga. So I made the foolish mistake of listening to the Silver Bullet podcast while I was on a plane. And uh, I'm sure there were many weird looks zeroing in on me as I quietly tried to hold it together from (laughs) laughing uncontrollably uh, in a confined space full of strangers. So uh, could you tell us what is Bikram Yoga? Well, it is not laughing uncontrollably um, (laughs) in a confined space. It is moving in a confined space, though. My journey with Bikram Yoga started in 2009, half a lifetime ago. So I was 14 years old and I'm 28 now. And how I got into it was through a friend of mine, Gillian Crosby. We went to high school together. And her mother, Sally, who unfortunately passed away in recent years, Mm. Sally was practicing Bikram yoga. Right. And I, at that point, had recently come out of hospital for anorexia treatment. 
previously I was very active and I am again now, thankfully, it's a huge part of my mental health routine as much as it is my physical routine. The two are very much interconnected. But I, I had been very active as a kid playing soccer, playing water polo, running cross country, and really just doing as much as I possibly could, playing in the outdoors. And I went from that lifestyle to right before I was hospitalized, being limited in what I could do. And then when I was in hospital, the first two weeks I was in there, I actually wasn't allowed to get out of bed. And so my muscles had atrophied and that was quite a confronting experience, not only for a 14-year-old, but for somebody who was really quite active. And I had to slowly build back to exercise. And yoga seemed like a fair transition. Yeah. However, (laughs) Bikram yoga is, it's like the marathon. (laughs) It's like the marathon of yoga. Mm. Bikram himself is quite a complicated individual. There's lots of scandal surrounding Bikram who, who, you know, we we won't go into that. Mm. My introduction was through Sally and Gillian and we all went along together. And I liked it because it was something that challenged me while it had, you know, it was a still practice. Yeah. Uh, The discipline, the intensity, albeit the heat probably could have been turned down a little bit. Yeah, can you, can you describe what, what goes on in those? So it's a 90-minute yoga class of 26 hatha postures that you perform twice each. And hatha yoga is, it means that you're static when yeah. you're doing them. You're holding these really, a lot of them are difficult stretches Um, and awkward. There's actually a pose called awkward pose, but they're really difficult poses, a lot of them. And on top of that, the heat in the room is turned up to about 40 degrees Celsius and the humidity is above 80%. That sounds disgusting. It is a bit, especially (laughs) every studio has a different design and often you'll go into a room that is carpeted. And as you can imagine, especially if there's more than one class a day, you get this pungent <laughs> pungence from the baked-in sweat. Yeah, yeah. Um, I heard it described as um, like a thousand years of human sweat. It is, well, probably the equivalent of about a thousand years of human sweat when you consider how many people are in there at a time. You'll often get people sort of packed in side by side like sardines, mat to mat, all sweating. You start sweating the moment you get into the room. Yeah. And then you're performing these intense back bends and forward bends and twisting yourself around, and it's not for the faint-hearted. No, no I, think I think a lot I'll of, ever try that. <laughs> I think a lot of people presume that yoga is going to be easy because it isn't a high-intensity normally exercise, mm. and this is quite different from that. Yeah. <laughs> quite the understatement, it seems. Yeah. Um, so I... Recently read your book, the the ninth life of a diamond miner. I'm and, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a wild ride. It's a wonderful read, and I've got to say, after having read it, well, it now feels completely fitting that when I bumped into you by chance a few weeks ago, um, of course you were wearing uh, like you're on your way back from an art shop to restock your supplies and wearing your Rolling Stone cactus tongue jumper. 
So I thought I'd start in the world of art and uh, I want to ask you about the the cover art of the book, which you drew from what I understand. Is that right? Yes, yeah. I did. And it's not actually finished. Oh, right. There yeah, you go. <laughs> yeah. um, but you've got a few different things going there. There's a, a sketch of wild animals and lots of mushrooms and something that ties them all together. Is that like intestines or something? What is that? Oh, it's just string or string, yeah. thread. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of symbolism in there, I suppose. Can you tell us about the, the cover art and the imagery that you chose and what it, what it means? Sure. I mean, I can zone in on a few symbols perhaps. Mm. Um got the as a scorpion in there and a little known fact is that scorpions are the only known predator of the rock spider. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just a little bit of a... Straight away know what you mean there. Yep, yep. <laughs> okay. Um, the mushrooms are all throughout the piece. They are actually emblematic of the womb um, mm. and I guess, though I don't speak to it directly in the book, there's sort of these rebirths that a lot of survivors of child sexual abuse especially go through in their life. Yeah, it's what happens okay. to you in childhood sets the stage for the rest of your life. And you'll often find that survivors whose bodies as children are not the only thing that have been corrupted. It's their entire identity mm. um, as well, because that is the process of childhood. That's the point of childhood is integration. And so you, you'll get um, a, a different imprint at the cellular level on the child who is abused before they form themselves as an adult and have a full concept of the world, but also the concept of the self. So there's that in there. There's a skull in there just because, you know, metal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, you know, life, death, all that sort of thing like that, mm. dark light, um, all those ideas. Right. So laden with meaning. All these things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Laden with meaning. Um, some wolves in there. They're symbolic of the media, uh, who are often described as being like wolves, and mm. I would say that they are. Um, and not not all media. Media yep. is a broad term. Um, yes. But uh, yeah, certainly I've I've seen some of the worst sides of of media, um, mm. and their sort of insatiable hunger for what we might call trauma pornography, um, oh, yeah. especially when we're dealing with, again, children who've been abused. Um, there needs to be a, a, an understanding, a level of respect for that. Mm. And I've certainly experienced cases where there hasn't been. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I'll bet. Yeah, it's an interesting story, though, to think back on that time of actually drawing the book cover. Mm. I was in a clinic at the time, and that's where I started drawing the the piece. Yeah. And uh, there's something in that maybe as well. Um, you know, I was taking time out from this huge onslaught mm. that was sort of thrust upon myself at the beginning of 2021 yeah. and allowing my thoughts the sort of freedom to expand and actually finish. Yeah. But the thread that goes through there is also emblematic of of what it's like to have a life disrupted so early that you spend a lot of your years later trying to untangle it and it's very hard to do that. Yeah. You spend your life almost investigating what happened to you. That's a very common experience for survivors of crime mm. and piecing things together that often don't make sense because... These sorts of things defy explanation. They defy, you know, 
intellectualism, if mm. you will. Well, that gives me a, a new appreciation for the cover every time I look at it. But also you can read whatever you want into it. I, I have a kind of a Lynchian approach to things where, you know, he sort of says, oh, I don't interpret my art, so why should you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that, you know, the subjectivity that other people bring to it and they see different things that jump out to them, I think that's great as well. Yeah, yeah, very much the nature of art, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. And speaking of art, you've been commissioned a few times to make art for, for people, and one of them was for John Cleese, where you did a Monty Python version of The Last Supper. Um, what was it like to create something so significant for you in your, your childhood? That was an interesting experience, Yeah, definitely. That piece took seven weeks. I drew it um, for for John for a Father's Day present. I was commissioned actually by his daughter, Camilla, who's really the connection that I have to John. She's a really good friend of mine. So Camilla and I met in Santa Barbara when I was still at community college and I would have been 19 years old then. And we struck up a friendship and decided to keep in touch over social media. And she saw that I I did art as sort of a side hobby, mm. um, which is something I've always done. I've always enjoyed doing it, you know, just drawing and 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 whatnot, um, especially my mother and I, we really enjoy doing it. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's it's sort of strange, again, to reflect on how that came about because I just remember meeting her in the back of this Italian restaurant. She's a great comedian in her own right, Camilla. At first I met John when I was 19 years old and then I ended up um, living with Camilla on and off for about five years and she gave me a place to stay, actually, when I had nowhere else to go. Um, at one point, I was, you know, I had all my stuff in my car and I just drove up from Los Angeles all the way to Eureka or Mad River in um, the north of California. Sounds like a big um, drive. And, 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 yeah, and I would have been about 20 then. And when she found out that I was, you know, essentially just couch surfing and had nowhere to go, she was like, that's not on. <laughs> and she actually gave me a place to stay. So yeah, nice. There's quite a lot behind that mm. piece and that connection. Um, the drawing, you know, came about years later. It started out as just a simple idea to send up a piece of art with one of John's many Maine Coon cats. He's got five, I think, four or five Maine Coon cats, which are these giant, like, five-kilo cats. <laughs> um, it, it started out as this seed of an idea to send up a piece of high art with you know, the cat's face is sort of transposed. Love that. We ended up using The Last Supper as the canvas because there's also a nod in there to one of the sketches that the Pythons did for their live shows where Eric Idle played Michelangelo and John played the Pope as someone who was displeased with Michelangelo's um, exaggerated and incorrect attempt to capture a gross number of disciples that was inaccurate and, you know, I think 28 or something like that and three Christs and all these other things that were in there. So I thought, well, that, that would be an easy model, an easy framework to then sub out and sub in characters from John's extensive canon of work, including Python characters, but also characters from Faulty Towers and A Fish Called Wanda and other little references all throughout the piece, which you sort of can, you know, like kind of like Where's Wally, you can find things. Yeah, plenty of Easter eggs. Yeah, plenty of Easter eggs in there. And then he, when we presented it to him, he actually he does this thing where all, so all of his got, he's got none of his original teeth. Um, they're all screw-ins. And it's like this 
this thing where often when he travels, he will just lose a, t- a tooth. And so we presented it to him. We got this great photo of him with like a front tooth missing and just grinning ear to ear. And he really loved it. And yeah. he ended up asking if um, we could sell it or they could sell it as part of their merchandise for a tour that he did in 2017 for the 40 year anniversary of the Holy Grail's release. Yeah. And I would have, I was 22 at the time. And, you know, someone who grew up like many, many in the West watching Faulty Towers as sort of part of a a diet of good subversive comedy. Mm. And I went, why not? And joined them for a little bit of the tour around the US. Yeah. And it became some of their best selling merchandise they've ever had. Yeah. Ah, that's awesome. What a great story. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, with respect to the fact that, you know, John is John and He's got his views and I've got mine. And Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's 83 years old, you know, but I'm definitely um, close with Camilla. Yeah. she's And she's really bright and really funny. Yeah. I mean, Amazing. she's been very generous to me, for sure. Oh, that's cool. Um, so could you tell us, Grace, about the Grace Team Foundation and what day-to-day life looks like for you? <laughs> I'll answer that in two parts. First of all, I'll answer the question about the the foundation. So the foundation has an overarching goal, and that is to prevent, intervene, and respond to child sexual abuse. And within that remit, we focus on a few specific areas, a few specific approaches to achieving that goal. One of those is education and awareness raising, with a particular focus on grooming and the psychological manipulation that underpins uh, the incidence of childhood sexual abuse, mm. which we do see covered in the media. However, there's less of an understanding, I would say, and certainly from experience, of that grooming synthesis, that grooming framework. Mm. The other area of focus or another area of focus that we have is through structural reform. So looking at how we can improve the criminal justice system to better support survivors of child sexual abuse. Yeah. So that covers both law and policy. And then the third pillar, if you will, of the foundation is philanthropy. And we work closely with a law firm called Mark Lawyers who are based in New South Wales and we provide funding to support the legal work of survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are the three main areas of focus. Yeah, okay. And so, yeah, what uh, what does a day look like for you? No two days look the same to me. (laughs) Um, I have... A relatively consistent routine through running, mm. um, back on a training program now, building up to the Bruni Ultra Marathon in the first week of December. So I'm running about 50, 60 Ks a week at this stage, maybe working my way up to about 80, but probably don't need to go any further than that. But that's sort of my only consistent <laughs> factor um, and sleeping. Um, you know, it can look like meeting with survivors over Zoom, hearing their disclosures. That was something I did yesterday. Earlier today, before I came here, I was in a a virtual roundtable with um, 
members of the Federal Attorney General's Department and other stakeholders um, in what we would call the sector around, you know, if you want to use sexual violence as a broad term, uh, it is a broad church, but that would probably be the best term to use, I suppose. Yeah, lots of different things. um, It might mean flying into state and giving a talk um, or engaging at a community event, that sort of thing, meeting with other stakeholders, Mm. planning law reform, campaign ideas. At the moment, we've just undertaken, in collaboration with Mark Lawyers, who I mentioned before, a pretty meaty law reform project. Other projects that we've had have been quite simple, relatively mm. amendments to legislation might be, for example, the removal of a word from a criminal offence heading, such as the word relationship, which used to be in the heading of every jurisdiction's description or a criminal offence heading of persistent child sexual abuse is what it's called now. Yeah. That's a relatively simple piece of alternative legislation to draft. If you're going to campaign, you want to do the work beforehand. You want to go to the policy and decision makers, to to governments, and have everything laid out very clearly, mm. the call to action, all the messaging. Yeah. So there's no wriggle room for them to back away and say, oh, no, we don't want to do this. This is too hard. Yeah. This project that we're taking undertaking at the moment is a more specific provisional adjustment to the application of the permanent stay principle. So that will actually require looking at creating more provisions to limit how that principle is used specifically in the jurisdiction of child sexual abuse. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys are doing plenty of work, but there's plenty of work to be done. Plenty of work. There's always work to be done, unfortunately. Child sexual abuse is a broad sphere in of itself. You know, if you we talked about sexual violence before, which is this again, broad church, then you've got child sexual abuse and child sexual abuse is is big as well, because you've got child on child offending. You've got historic cases of child sexual abuse. You've got all kinds of things within that umbrella. Um, and just zoning in on on legislation is is a huge task because there's lots of things that need to be amended. Yeah, sure. And so uh, honing in on some of that stuff now, child sexual abuse, um, how bad is it in Australia? I've heard you share the stats before, but uh, yeah, tell us kind of the conditions at the moment, maybe even how it compares with other countries. Yeah, so there was a study that came out in April, first of its kind, the Australian Childhood Maltreatment Study. There'll be another one in a couple of years to update the figures. Mm. But currently, according to this study, it's about one in four Australians, so 28.5%, I think it was, who experienced childhood sexual abuse, and I'm going to use present tense here, who experienced childhood sexual abuse before age 18. Wow. So that's one in three girls and one in five boys. Yeah, it's crazy. Most of that abuse is likely to occur between the ages of three and eight. A lot of the information that came out that was of interest to me was the persistent nature. So 78% of the survivors who contributed said they experienced more than one incident. Mm. Then 42% said they experienced it more than six times. And then outside of the childhood maltreatment study, we know that the conviction rate 
for child sex offenders is 0.3%. And I think that's very revelatory when you take those two things side by side. So one is the, the persistent nature or the ongoing nature versus how little accountability there is. Actually, this morning, another survivor of childhood sexual abuse who's a, an advocate himself, Harry James, was on the radio and he said, we don't have a knowledge gap. There's lots of this information out there. You're hearing these statistics. We don't have a knowledge gap. We have an accountability gap. Mm. And I think, again, that that those statistics clearly don't add up because clearly people are experiencing it at really high rates. It's very prevalent here. One thing that we don't talk often enough about either is intrafamilial abuse or incest. And when you think about three and eight being the ages between which child sexual abuse is most likely to occur, you can see where it's going to happen more in the family context or in the context of institutions where the offenders have access to the child, they have greater psychological power over them anyway, but there's less of an ability for the child to escape, especially from a parent or a caregiver in those settings. Yeah. And it's, it really does speak to the type of offender that we're dealing with here. So, you know, adult on adult crime is one thing. So adult on adult sexual offending will be really specific is one thing. And the conviction rate's pretty low there. It's 1.5% or 1.7% figures are varied, but it's really low. Mm. And then you 0.3 is what you get for child sexual abuse where we're talking about a, an adult offending against a child, not a child offending against another child. And to me, that speaks to, you know, not just the low, not just the high attrition rate, but really the type of offender, the cognitive miser, if you will, mm. who even to procure and groom an already isolated child, one has to subvert a number of steps, not just laws, but also yeah, relationships. Relationships. They have to manipulate people. It requires not only the will, but the preparation, the knowledge, the criminal intent to to harm a child, mm. let alone to actually execute that repeatedly and to maintain secrecy and conspiracy and to engage that child in those behaviours as well. It's pretty dark. It's very dark. It's very twisted. Yeah. One of the um, phrases that you use a number of times in your book is nothing is harmless in the hands of the harmful. Um, That one's really stuck with me. Uh, So let's talk about grooming. You recently shared with me that you've been collaborating with some academics to expand the literature and understanding of grooming in society. Could you share some of the work that you've been doing there and then maybe lay out for us the, the six stages of grooming? Grooming is a very complex synthesis of behaviors that encompass both psychological manipulation and physically observable behaviours. Recently, I was contacted by Elizabeth Jieglick, Dr. Elizabeth Jieglick, I should say, who co-authored a paper in 2016 with another psychologist by the name of Georgia M. Winters, who's also a doctor. She called her Dr. Georgia M. Winters. (laughs) And in that paper, they proposed a framework which summarises these behaviours in six main steps. With respect to the fact that every case of child sexual abuse is very individualised because of how perpetrators groom a child specific to their 
life, their network, their unmet needs, so on and so forth. However, this map is really um, transposable to almost every case of prolonged child sexual abuse, Mm. where there's a a period of time before the contact offending actually begins, wherein through grooming, the offender will psychologically prepare the victim and also the network around the victim to accept abuse as a normal aspect of life. That's what really grooming is, if you were to sort of summarise it. It's, mm. it's the stealthy erosion of boundaries to prepare an environment for abuse. And it really is an eco- ecosystem of abuse that we're talking about when we're talking about something like grooming and offending. It's an ecosystem of abuse that is needed to facilitate something so dark yeah. because it needs to be introduced slowly in order for people to accept it for its shocking nature if it was otherwise introduced, you know, immediately. Mm. And the six phases are targeting. So that's identifying a, a vulnerable individual, children by virtue of their age and their still developing psychology, still developing physicality mm. um, and social framework are all vulnerable. Yep. The second phase is gaining trust. So that's fostering a friendship of sorts, a connection with the child in order to create a false sense of security with them. The third phase is filling a need which is particularly calculated. It involves identifying where there's an emotional gap in the life of that child, where they perhaps have a broken attachment or a completely absent attachment, and then playing the role that services those needs or that need in particular. So, you know, for example, with me, this offender had very closely watched me for an entire year as my teacher in, in grade nine, the year that I spoke about before, I was hospitalized for six weeks. You know, I was absent for his, from his class, yeah. which was a very small class. There were only about eight or nine of us in, in that class. I was absent from that class for about, nine, uh, for about six weeks, sorry. And he very closely watched me in that time. And I remember some comments that have stuck out to me since that would indicate somebody who was actually in the process of grooming during that time. Um, you know, there's a concept that we call negging, um, which actually comes from a, uh, I think his, his name's Neil Strauss, the Neil Strauss book called The Game. Yes, yes. Have you heard of that? I've, I've heard the If Books Could Kill podcast where they debunk that book. Yeah, yeah. So negging is one of the techniques actually in that um, book, as well as active disinterest. Mm. And my first memory, and I wrote this in the book without knowing about Neil Strauss's book, the first time that I remember Mr. Bester was when he came and started speaking to my friend Gillian, who I mentioned before, mm. at the end of year eight when I was about to go into his class. I don't know if that's any if there's anything to that, but mm. anyway, yeah. um, just something. To, and I would have been thirteen at that time. That was the end of two thousand and eight. Yeah, and I've also since heard as well that um, I think there was a case at Geelong Grammar of an offender who would go into the school's database and actually find the children who were from broken homes, which is a terrible term, but they were from broken homes or they were from divorced families. And interestingly, we found that Mr. Bester had kept on his home computer, as was discovered by the police, a folder of 
girls that um, whose identities had to be pointed out by another teacher at the school. But this folder of girls had that he had on his computer, most of them, according to this teacher who I've since spoken to about about this, were from the boarding house or similar to me, their support network, not close by. Yeah. So that's the feeling a need is really calculated. Yeah. Yeah, there's something in that. Um, again, that's particularly indicative of the fact that this is not a crime of impulse or a crime of opportunity. There's a level of care and consideration in the process, not care and consideration for the child, but for to undertake that process. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of thought that goes into that. Yeah. The fourth phase is isolating. And this sort of happens, again, concurrently throughout. There's this sort of gradual pushing away of the child's other friends, family, and just network in general, especially those that could be a positive influence and ask any questions. So that fourth phase of isolation is really driving deliberate wedges between the children or child who's being abused and anyone who could stop or help them escape the abuse. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. The fifth phase is the sexualizing. And again, this is happening throughout. It's the gradual exposure of sexual content so as to normalize it. Mm. It could just be comments or it could be as blatant, as brazen as, in my case, I was made to watch films that glorified age differences between characters and there were sexual relationships between those characters. So The Graduate, which is a well-known film, and Mr. Best was always playing The Sound of Silence in his office, the soundtrack to The Graduate. And there was another film that was really on the nose. It was called The Primer for Miss Jean Brody, and that was set in a school and it featured, you know, an older male teacher and a young student who... Um, you know, there was a sexual, uh, there was sexual misconduct in that. Yeah. And the last line of that film is, give me a girl at an impressionable age and she is mine for life. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I was also made to watch a film called Lost and Delirious, which is set in a school. It's about private, three private school girls who are friends and they're trying to find love in the absence of strong um, conditional parental support. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty sinister. Mm. It's pretty bleak. Yeah. And banal a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah. You know, um, I was indeed groomed to think that this person cared about me. Um, but, you know, when I consider most of the offending took place on a carpet, um, not unlike the carpet just there, and that that this person was also willing to just use children to satisfy his needs, um, it's it's pretty low. It's yeah. pretty it's almost as low as you can get, if not as low as you can get. Absolutely. Um, and the sixth phase is the maintaining control, and that's done very carefully by striking a balance between causing harm and then also providing relief from that harm, and that's to trap the victim very much in a state of cognitive dissonance, Mm. which is really hard to break free from even in adulthood um, because the offender will at least present as being someone who has a capability of kindness or, you know, who can take away the pain, you Mm. know, and it's really interesting that 
what we need to sort of understand about grooming is that, you know, children will be drawn to the attachment at the emotional level, but they will often find the sexual contact very confusing, to say the least. And because children are still in the process of having their neural architecture actually fully formed, they lack the ability to even understand this distinction, let alone express it. Hmm. And so children will think that these things are interchangeable, that emotional connection and the sexual gratification, and they'll actually learn that fawning and people-pleasing is what saves them um, and what minimises the pain that is inevitable in these circumstances that are dictated entirely by an adult person who has so many power advantages over them. And knowing that, trying to understand that, that that is what children will be drawn to, is really crucial, making that distinction. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing all that personal stuff as well. Um, just as you say, those six steps, like you can, I can just feel how disorienting and discombobulating that whole situation would be. It is. It's a really disorienting experience. I mean, especially because it happens over a long period of time and it's like pieces of your soul are fragmented and stored away in all of these different places. And then you have to, in the years after, while you're traumatized as well, try to recover those parts of yourself and put them back together mm. in a kind of haphazard way. Yeah. You know, um, and there's always going to be question marks. There's always going to be that doubt. There's going to be that, is that, was that this or was it that? You know, did they say this? Did they say that to mean this? You know, I have a strong memory of a lot of the comments, but there's always the question was there an underhanded meaning? to all of those things or just a few, you know, and that's part of that that game of yeah. destabilising somebody not just physically but mentally Yeah, through those six phases, you know, the targeting, the gaining trust, the filling a need, the isolating, the sexualizing, and then the maintaining control over them. And the maintaining control extends beyond the contact offending. Often you'll find in cases of child sexual abuse, especially historic ones, you'll see that perpetrators will use any tools available to them so nothing is harmless in the hands of the harmful they will use any tool available to them to continue accessing the child victim even in adulthood and their family or their network any of their supporters through network distribution you know online spilling fallacies about what happened or um, directly harassing the person, or um, even there was a case in in Launceston of an offender who was writing letters from prison about the about the victim, um, and letters were finding their way into the local paper and things like that. You know that trying to access that child victim to maintain control over them, they will cynically abuse the legal system as a tool to access the child victim. Anything they can do to possibly keep tabs on them to keep controlling them yeah for as long as possible grotesque horrible reality um and so all this stuff is of course intensely personal to you and was no doubt incredibly traumatic and um you've compared your trauma to a time that you broke your clavicle once um could you tell us about how you break that particular bone i'm sure most people don't even know what it is i don't think i do it's a shoulder bone (laughs) There you go. So yep. You can see it, actually. Oh, the bit that sticks out, right. Can yeah. you see that? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't get surgery on it. Okay. It's small. Right. 
So why is the clavicle a fitting metaphor for trauma and how? Um, uh, what are some of the ways that you've dealt with it yourself over the years? Oof, it's interesting because it's all sort of intertwined, um, which again is very um, emblematic of child sexual abuse. So I broke my collarbone. That might be a more familiar term mm, for that. people listening. I broke my collarbone on the 1st of February 2022. So it was a pretty heightened time. If anybody else remembers, I did frown at Scott Morrison only five or six days before that. <laughs> and then I have I came off my, my bike riding back from Opossum Bay along the South Arm Highway and took a very sharp dogleg turn on a very hot day over some gravel going about 40 plus k's an hour because I was also going down a hill and I'm a bit of a speed demon. I like to go fast. And, you know, when time just expands under the force of adrenaline, I knew <laughs> that I was going to fall off the bike before. Um, I was, it was a slow motion. Yeah, the know? longest few like, seconds oh. you've experienced. Anyway, yeah, I fell off the bike, broke my shoulder. I was actually riding as an alternative to running. Because in May of 2021, I fractured my pelvis in two places from stress, from overloading. Also, I have a history of anorexia and um, amenorrhea from not menstruating. That's what that is, amenorrhea. And so I've got low bone density. So I'd fractured my pelvis in two places in middle of 2021 when running was my real outlet for stress, which was great. Didn't need that in the middle of 2021. And then got healed, I thought towards the end of that year and started running again and upped my volume way too quickly. was running, you know, 80 k's a week all of a sudden again and then fractured my foot. So I was in a moon boot. <laughs> and then I thought, well, okay, I'll ride a bike then. And that didn't end well. So bad things come in threes, I suppose, and I fully, <laughs> fully snapped my collarbone. <laughs> yeah. But it did make me think a lot about child sexual abuse and how there's a, there's a similarity between the two First of all, for the reason that unlike other bones in the body, you can't isolate the shoulder, sort of connected to everything else. Mm. And like I said before, what happens to you in childhood sets the stage for the rest of your life. You know, if you're abused in childhood, it's not actually just your physical body. I mean, not for re- anyone, it's not just their physical body that is abused. It's a, it's a very all-encompassing trauma to be sexually abused. It's very invasive. Whether you're a man who's penetrated or a woman who's penetrated in any form, who's invaded physically, it is a whole experience of violence. You're violated um, in every sense. But especially as a child, when you're that process of identity integration is supposed to be occurring as smoothly as it can, there's always going to be lumps and bumps. And so, I, you know, it made me think about how this, this trauma of a broken shoulder, which, you know, really was a test because I, you know, I'm not really one to wear a sling. I didn't, the sling didn't last long with me. I, I gave up on it after about three or four weeks or something like that and let it heal and it did. But it's, it, yeah, it crosses paths with so many other things. You can't separate it. It does sort of, you know, bleed into, if you will, other parts of your life. Mm. Um, and also the way that it happened, when I first broke it, the bone wasn't displaced. It was still in. It was still flush, and there was just a big break in it. But then, because of gravity, it actually slowly broke. Sort of. Oh, just, sounds painful. <laughs> yeah, like 
fracture at a t- like one fracture after the other until there was about a half centimeter gap between the the two sides of the bone. And that's very much like child sexual abuse as well, especially that's persistent, is that there's this sort of um, gradual breaking of the self. You know, we don't sort of fall to pieces, I say. We fall in pieces, you know, and then we sort of have to pick ourselves up in in much the same way, Um, you know, very messily in a nonlinear sort of fashion. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, So you've since returned to the school where all this happened. Yeah. And you've even spoken there since. I have. What was that like to face your fears like that? Was it something that brought a sense of closure or importance, healing even? Yeah, I don't even know if I would describe it as facing one's fears, Um, you know, um, but energetically it holds something, you know, it holds that time in it. Um, In fact, I'm not the only one who has recognised that. In fact, there was somebody I met who was responsible for clearing out his office before that building was gutted and replaced. And she didn't know that the abuse had taken place in that office. But she remarked afterwards to the school that she felt there was something dark in there. She said there was something off about that room that she had had to take this furniture out of. And then they told her that that is where this had taken place. So that's a complete stranger. He had no idea Mm. and could feel that there was something amiss in the presence of this sort of stagnant evil mm. that hung in the air there. And you could you could feel it when you walked in there, you know, and I'm somebody who's not religious in the dogmatic sense, but spiritually, I mean, you can feel energy. The science block where most of the abuse at the school Um, with respect to the fact that there were other locations in Hobart in the vicinity that were used, Um, that's been gutted. The science block's been gutted. His office is not there anymore. But there's a pathway that linked the science block to the staff room where there's these turquoise, turquoise lino. And just walking on that, I could see, I had this sort of out-of-body experience of seeing my younger 15-year-old self running in slow motion. Like I was just, I just had this vivid recall of me running, you know, one weekend, I think, just up, up and down there and him watching me, you know, probably was probably smiling, you know. And I, I went, I actually went back and parked my car outside of the school recently and I walked the it's exact it's an exact mile. I walked the exact mile from the school to the West Hobart home where I would sometimes walk. He had access to this Mr. Bester had access to this home in West Hobart in about October but the spring of 2010 it was unoccupied. So I walked there so I'd been asked to reflect on some uh, some news coverage um, that I'd experienced by a certain outlet, and I couldn't even make it to the house before I started crying. Yeah. Um, but I did. I made it to the house, and I got there, and I was very struck by how at once familiar it was and unfamiliar it was. You know, it was much smaller than I imagined, you know, and not that I was 
um, much smaller than I am now. I'm still quite a small person. But I remembered it being, I remember it being much bigger. It's not. It was this small, run-down house. It's red brick house. And again, those very distinct memories, which I have no problem recalling, um, and they're often at the forefront of my mind for the work that I do, they were very, very directly hovering. Mm. And the neighbour was mowing his lawn and saw me and I just sort of said, oh, do you know the person who lives in the house? Because I was wondering if, you know, there was somebody else who occupied it now or the person who I had met who occupied the house and handed it over to Bester's care, you know, for the time that, that he was away was still the, the same owner. And the neighbours said, oh, you know, he's unfortunately passed away. Did you know him? And I just started to cry. I couldn't help. I just, and I said, look, I only met him very briefly. You know, that was a long time ago. And he said, are you Grace? And I said, yeah. And he said, thank you. Thank you. And he offered me a glass of water. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, oh, no, I'm okay. Thank you. And then I stood on, stood on the steps outside and then sat down like I used to sit and it was very profound in that, you know, I thought to myself afterwards, like, that's all kids want really is to be able to write their own terms, mm. you know, because he didn't turn up. There was no silver car in the driveway that came, you know, and we didn't watch any movies or do anything else. Yeah. And he actually, in the end, used to often after those times drop me off at Bikram Yoga um, and to make me look like I had been to Bikram Yoga, he would put me in the shower with him in that house. But none of that happened, you know, and I just wished the neighbour well and I walked away. Yeah. Well, I've got one more question around this stuff and then we change gears pretty significantly. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> it's <laughs> fucking dark, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, for all the narratives that have been spun about that time, mm. it's that sort of stuff where I just wish I could take some of those journalists and just take them there and just put put them in front of places like that and go, what would, imagine if that was you as a kid. Yeah. There's nothing glamorous about that. No. And, and sometimes, you know, you wish that there was mm. because it might have made it a bit easier. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. If people had any idea what was going on. Um, so, yeah, the final question I had in, just in relation to that. So, yeah, obviously for you a, a key moment was when you disclosed and I, I guess a lot of your, like the trajectory changed significantly at that point. Um, and I imagine it was a time where you started to find your voice a bit more. How have you kind of gone looking back in knowing who you are and the journey that you've been on, like, how how do you think that you found the courage and found your voice? <laughs> <laughs> it's a curly question, only because it's there's not a static answer. Yeah, it's the voice as with the person is constantly evolving. Mm. I mean, it's interesting to think about because I think there's perhaps the point. Of, I don't know what it's like from the point of view of the public, but but 
the journey very much like healing from trauma has been very messy and, you know, finding one's voice when, you know, you're abused as a child, it's going to take trial and error. You're going to maybe find your voice and then your voice will change as you age and your opinions will change, your perspective will expand, one would hope, as your mind is kept open to different things and you learn more about these things. And Time and age are very confronting forces when you've been abused as a child because some of those experiences you can only properly appreciate through the lens of adulthood. Yeah. You know, there's a line from a German film, Wings of Desire, Aus das Kind Kind war, Wurstechen ist das das Kind war, which means, you know, when the child was a child, didn't know it was a child. And that's like the definition of innocence, right? Mm. And I always say, like, the older I get, the younger I was. Mm. So there's more and more distance between the child, me, and me as an adult. You know, most kids are taller than me, you know, yeah. who are that age. But they're young and their youth is is just just transcends everything. You know, whether they're really tall or, or very smart, they still have a youth. And I don't mean that to say um, we need to fetishize innocence because that's part of the problem with child sexual abuse. But there is a there's a youth is its own thing, you know, being like childhood is its own thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's very distinct, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, children are going to do dumb things. That's part of finding one's own feet, writing one's own uh, rites of passage. They're going to experiment. They're going to piss you off if you're a parent or somebody who loves them. But the idea is that they experience those things as much as possible on their own terms and that adults and everyone around them is, is supposed to be there as a guide but not as a as a as an invader yeah yeah for sure or dictator I like the idea of the voice like finding our voice is a process isn't it it is a very much a process it's like life itself you know sometimes it's two steps forward one step back or a few steps to the side or maybe you do round in circles a little bit you know and create a bit of a tornado and like you know, <laughs> I don't know, whatever <laughs> i don't know how many metaphors i can throw in there but yeah yeah finding your voice is is really difficult and it involves different forms of expression too some people because of their trauma don't actually want to speak and that is fine the whole the whole point is restoring agency to the person who's lost that agency and that can look like whatever the person wants it to look like that can look like not speaking about it it could look like communicating through art it could look like communicating through some other medium entirely that is their own and that's i think the whole point of like you find your voice and it is yours and you can cultivate it you can change it you can do whatever you want yeah that's awesome so let's pivot a bit um, change gears a bit now. You spent a bit of your time in the world of political punditry. Um, <laughs> you write uh, and co-host a podcast for The Shot, uh, who I love reading and listening to personally. Very funny, very fair, very insightful <laughs> takes on modern politics. Um, and you have a really refreshing take on politics in your book. So let me just read uh, a quote that you, you, you oh, share there. <laughs> Maybe my, my, my opinions may have evolved since then. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, no. well. <laughs> so you say this, uh, if anyone bothered to ask me directly what my politics are, rather than assume them or take Rupert Murdoch's mastheads as gospel, they'd know I'm not a diehard leftist on every issue, or even a leftist at all, really. I'm more of a centrist if you really must box me in. So let's do some boxing now. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe some unpacking boxes. But I, yeah, and maybe centrist isn't even the right term either. I probably like I'm more apolitical a, a than anything. I'm very sceptical of political doctrines. Labels? 
Yeah. Generally speaking, you mm. know, the left, you know, will will at times be so radical that they're right, mm. vice versa. Mm. Politics is messy. Like I said, nothing really maps neatly into good and bad, but also nothing maps neatly into left and right. You know, yeah. there's the need for conservatism sometimes. You know, like, for example, the economy is not a static thing. And at certain times you're going to need to have a conservative approach and at other times you're going to need to have a progressive approach to just the economy. Yeah. That's just one thing. There's fiscal politics. Yeah. Then there's other things. Maybe socially I'd probably be arguably more progressive and more left-leaning, um, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Yeah. But that's also just being, I think, realistic that times change and they move with cultures. They move with Absolutely. not just the body politic. The body, politics is a, the body politic is a product of what we demand as a society. And you just have to be re- realistic that things are going to change. Mm. And, you know, you can resist that if you want, but you it'll cause more pain for you, <laughs> you know. And I think it's good to have a healthy democracy and see where things need to perhaps move at a less fast pace because some t- some change isn't always good change for the sake of change isn't isn't necessarily a good thing mm. but you know having that balance of push and pull is fundamental to life yeah it's important to take issue each issue on its merits yeah so maybe centrism is not the right term but like being apolitical realizing you know like there are errors in socialism there are, you know I've been called a communist before. I'm not a <laughs> communist. You know, there's like things like that. But like there are errors in all of these different political ideologies and I'm not an I- I'm not an ideologue. Mm. You know, there's errors in all of those different approaches. If you are hard one way and or hard the other, yeah. that is, I think, dangerous because you need to be able to negotiate, you need to be able to work with everybody. So let's uh, let's talk about activism a bit now. Um, clearly, you've been a, a massive inspiration to many in the way that you've boldly advocated not only for yourself but for uh, other survivors and victims of abuse. You're also a voice for many other issues uh, like autism and asylum seekers and women's rights and many other things. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm totally wrong about that. But um, <laughs> do you have advice for people that want to make a difference in their community? Um, but but also um, how it can support others and minority groups, particularly when we don't have the same lived experience? I don't think you need lived experience to be able to have compassion. Hmm. Um, I think all you need is a willingness to understand and a willingness to learn. Maybe if you can't understand, you can you can at least have that willingness to, to connect and hear and support. And support can look like anything. You know, I often say that no contribution is too small because um, when you add up all of the different individual contributions, they will make a large collective force. Yeah. And everything happens as a result of community. That's how how we have to think about everything. Unfortunately, you know, especially in Western culture and sort of this modern global culture that we have in the West at least, I can't speak to really outside of that point of reference, I suppose. I mean, I've been to Europe and um, it's, it's very, you know, it's European. There's this sort of toxic individualism where we have disintegrated in many ways the community unit, not in all respects. Some In some places it's stronger. But there's this sort of toxic individualism that's very much, I think, amplified by social media. That can also, beyond 
creating an illusion that we are disconnected from people, it can create more anxiety around how do I relate to this person? How can I help them? And I think we often measure things using the wrong metrics and we're looking for bigger, greater, when really you can use whatever skills you have personally and trans transform them into a vehicle for change. Say, for example, if you are a long-distance runner, you can get sponsored to raise money for a certain cause or participate in an event that in its entirety is supporting a particular cause, Mm. that sort of thing. If you're an artist, you can, you know, sell work and or, or paint about a certain issue, use it as a direct tool of communication to highlight a social issue or a political issue or both human issue. Yeah. You know, there's lots of different ways that you can do something that's both within your comfort zone um, that helps you reach out of that comfort zone and connect with something beyond your individual experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we all have uh, a part we can play in different passions and people, uh, networks available to us. That's right. Uh, you grew up with a mix of religious and sceptical people around you. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. Sure. <laughs> you say in your book that you're definitely spiritual but not religious. Uh, would it be fair to say that you're an agnostic or would, no, how would you no, kind of go again, about thinking I, about spirituality? I don't know. I really don't like labels. Hmm. Um, you know, I I just have sort of have an open mind and – yeah, I think for me, maybe maybe I'm a bit of a pantheist okay. in that, uh, you know, nature is my church. I think there's an inherent religiosity, inherent spirituality to mm. all of us who just are existing in this world and yep. all, the, all the energetic matter that is around. And when you, you know, for example, if, and that's just metaphysics though, isn't it? You know, if you're in a room all together and you're having a great time and you're all listening to the great song and you all like it, you know, and I'm not talking about Hillsong now, I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, maybe if you go to a good concert, it might be a metal concert or a punk concert or something like that, and you're all having a great time headbanging, you're going to feel, maybe yeah. that's it's not your cup of tea, maybe you like something a little slower, I don't know. But the point is, if you're all in an arena. And I mean, like the the great example is if you're at a sports game or something like that, like mm. I was very privileged to be able to go to one of the Matildas games yeah. and you could just feel it when you descended the stairs into the stadium, there's just all this like connective energy, just like buzzing, literally buzzing. That's what it is. People's cells are just ready mm. to, they're open and they're ready for a good time. Mm. Get among That's it. it. <laughs> I don't know. You don't need to create anything more complicated or, or deep than that. I think it's deep in of itself. It speaks yeah. volumes. Yeah. Okay. And I imagine with all your experiences, you'd have a pretty complicated relationship with Christianity. Oh, look, you know, my my step-grandmother, she's a um, Lutheran. She, she came out from um, Romania after the Second World War. They were actually in an internment camp, her and her, her older wow. brother, who's who passed away in recent years, Jerry. Um, you know, she's a she's a practicing Christian. She sings in the church choir. She attends church regularly. I have been to church with her. Um, I went to an Anglican high school. <laughs> I have friends who are Christian. If we're just talking about Christianity, hmm. yeah, I mean, 
I think you've got to treat people on a case-by-case basis and I think that goes for everything though. And I think we do tend to have blanket views on things. Yeah. You know, and we 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 want to put everything into an adversarial bi- binary framework mm. in life and that's very much a, a way of thinking or a way of mapping things out that is proliferated especially by our media which sort of seeps into our subconscious mind. And... The truth is that everyone's going to have their own subjective experience of something. So that I guess, but that's I guess why I find any kind of static framework around something that's, you know, whether it's a sort of a faith in the organised sense, it's counter to the idea of faith itself because you should be able to have limitless possibility and mm. not sort of a a doctrine. Sure. <laughs> but that's just my take, and I appreciate that people are going to have different takes. Yes, I did see a very ugly side of Catholicism, but is he a bastion of, of, of Catholic values? I don't know. I don't think that that would be fair because I, I you know, I think that that he will, like, like I said, nothing is harmless in the hands of the harmful, and I do think that he used that yeah. um, as part of his facade, if you will, yeah. to ingratiate himself with a known or, you know, established um, faith that that is supposed to be sort of, I guess, respectable. I mean, that was advantageous to him. And so I question that. I, I wouldn't hold him up as, a, no. as an exponent of that, as an example. Mm. Yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing that. The last thing I wanted to touch on is how important running is to you. Yes. <laughs> so um, you talk about it as having a transcendent quality to it. Um, it you, I think you said that uh, even the start of when we were chatting. Um, so, yeah, could you tell us about the spiritual connection that you have with running personally? Oof. It's very hard to distill. One almost needs to go on a long run oh, right. to feel to, it. To what are you it. doing after you? <laughs> yeah, at what point does it stop hurting? <laughs> 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 With pain, there is pleasure. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a great saying, it's make, make friends with pain and you'll never be alone. Yeah, I, I, one of the many reasons that I enjoy running and endurance running, long distance running, is because it replicates life. I mean, especially on a trail that will traverse varied terrain. You can't control the conditions but you can control to the best of your ability how you respond to those conditions, where you put your feet, how fast you go, and so forth. So I think, you know, if you're going to suffer in life, you may as well, as much as possible, suffer on one's own terms, <laughs> right? No. Um, there's, a, there's a very meditative aspect to it. You know, when you get into the sixth or seventh K of a long run that might go over 30 kilometres, you find yourself absorbed into this other state. And I've been so absorbed that I've forgotten that I'm in a body. So while there might be pain, that it sort of becomes part of you. You become and you, you do experience this sort of oneness, which is that's the foundation of yoga. Yoga means to yoke, to connect. A bit. It's that, that's that whole idea. It is. It's a meditation and it's a way to bond with both your environment or maybe somebody else is running with you. And anybody who's been on a long run knows that there's this unspoken understanding that you 
are experiencing the same thing together and, and yeah, you might not speak a word, but you've, you're feeling and you're, you're being present, so present. Um, you, it's hard to become more present than that, you know. And I don't run with music often. Sometimes I do. But I'll often run most of the time without music and I might listen to some songs afterwards or something like that. But I love running alone and in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is my church. If I'm to have a church, that's my church. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we've covered a lot of topics. I'm super thankful for your time and for everything that you've shared and your vulnerability. Wonderful having you on Deeper Questions, Grace. So thanks very much. No, thanks for having me. I hope that it was all all right and that my answers were deep enough. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely tick that box, I think. Well... Deeper Questions episodes won't come much heavier than that. I suspect as a listener, you're probably feeling a mix of emotions right now, and rightfully so. The stats Grace shared are unnerving. Stories like hers could fill countless bookshops, and yet often aren't reported, much less brought to trial. Perpetrators who can successfully game the system, gaslight the victims and gain the trust of those around them via deception, it's disgusting, it's insidious and evil. And personally, This one was sitting in my stomach for a few days, the extent to which all kinds of people experience all kinds of sickening, unjust, and grim realities like Grace did. And so, it feels appropriate to sit with the uncomfortable feelings, to stare into the abyss and reflect on the suffering and the evil in this world which people encounter regularly, and to let it weigh on you. I remember having a similar feeling when I went and saw Spotlight at the cinemas, and saw the scale of evil being committed by the church. I've never vomited while watching a movie, but this one had me pretty close. It's just soul-destroying stuff and a forceful showing of the pervasive power of evil to infiltrate any and every institution and community. It's all the more shameful that these places, places meant to protect and grow what is good and innocent, places meant to be sources of light, that they allowed these things to continue in the darkness in the way that they did. And for what it's worth, I'm deeply sorry if you or anyone you know has been impacted. There was a moment where Grace shared the story of the room being cleared out and that staff member sensing the evil that had taken place there. It's confronting, isn't it? I mean, morality is so much more than a social construct when you encounter the depths of human depravity. Some things are clearly and unambiguously wrong. Yet, there's hope too. I have a deep admiration and respect for everything that Grace has done, who she is, everything she's overcome and the difference that she's making. The world's glow goes up a few lumens when injustice is confronted. I enjoyed hearing her talk about finding one's voice, that it will look different for everyone and that it's an evolving and ever-changing thing. For some, it will be through a microphone. For others, it will be creative pursuits. For others, they'll quietly confide in a trusted friend or journal. And we all find different inspiration and different supports to draw from. For me... I'm inspired by my Christian faith, and particularly the way that God gives voice to the voiceless. It's something you see over and over again in the Bible, but especially with Jesus. Speaking up for those who are silenced, ignored, abandoned, and left for dead. But even more than that, he gives them hope and life and a promise for things being made right in the end, which can help us get off the canvas and hang in there. 
Maybe that's a fairy tale to you. Or maybe it's stories like these that actually change the present too. We need hope, we need a voice, and we need advocates. And for those experiencing injustice, well, God knows your tears. He hears your cry. He feels your pain. He too was silenced, ignored, abandoned, and left for dead on the cross. And yet God used it to change the world. And he can use you in the same way. I've never actually met a pantheist before, although admittedly, Grace was pretty tongue-in-cheek about it all, and will fight and scrap to avoid yet another label. But I'm finding it intriguing how many people are looking to nature for their spiritual cues. We've done a bunch of episodes on this stuff, so feel free to go through our back catalogue if you want to explore that more. I also love the freedom that Grace finds specifically in running. I know plenty of other types who find it to be a similar outlet and cathartic experience. It's such a great metaphor for the volatility of life. And similarly, the Bible uses that language to talk about finishing well, to have run the race, to claim the prize, and to take up the training now. So I want to close with that image and ask if you're putting in the work to finish well. To ask if you have the advocates and the spiritual garment and resources to draw upon when your time of need comes. It's great to be able to find our voice, but it's also great to be able to lean on the voice of a trusted friend in those times. Personally, I think true Christianity without the facade can give you what you need, especially amongst the volatility of life. There is real darkness out there, but there's also light. Thanks for listening to Deeper Questions. If you're enjoying these conversations, we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional resources, and you can always find more at thirdspace.org.au. If this episode has brought up some personal experiences for you that you'd like assistance with, you can call the 1800 Respect National Helpline on 1800 737 732 or Bravehearts on 1800 272 831. There'll also be some additional services in the show notes.